The Mourner's Bench is brought to you by Theolab, a media collective committed to creating a more candid dialogue about spirituality, culture, and the world. Are you disturbed by religious songs and theologies that talk about the blood of Jesus? But for some reason, you can't help but plead the blood over this election? Shut up. Well, you've come to the right place. Come sit on our pew. Let's cover this thing with the blood, honey. Happy Tuesday, fam. Welcome back to the Mourner's Bench. I'm Brandon Thomas, and it's election day. And you know what that means. It's time to get that joker out the White House. Hopefully you've already voted. If you haven't, what are you waiting on? Get up. Head on out. Cast your ballot. Our lives depend on it. Today we are excited to welcome Carlos Cardoza Orlandi to the Mourner's Bench. But before we get to that, come on in and rest your feet. We're talking about the Supreme Court and why it highlights the importance of this election. We're also talking about the saints, the ain'ts, ancestral veneration, and Lovecraft country. So friends, here we are on election day, just over a week after Judge Amy Coney Barrett, I guess now Justice Coney Barrett, has been placed on the Supreme Court in record time. Here's the deal, y'all. I tried so hard to pray it away. You know, the Amy Coney Barrett. I just tried to pray it away and... Similar to all the years I spent praying the gay away, it did not work. And here we are. What are your takeaways on the confirmation? When I think about this confirmation of Barrett to the Supreme Court, I think back when President Barack Obama was elected and a group of of folks within the GOP, there's this documentary, Newt Gingrich, I remember talking about this, saying that that very night they met and their agenda was to figure out how do they respond in a way that they don't lose power for a generation. Mm-hmm. And I think what we what we have seen with the, the way Trump and the GOP have prioritized confirmations to the Supreme Court and to um, federal to the federal bench, how many judges they have placed on the federal bench will shape um, the judiciary for the next generation. At least. And, and it has been um, I mean, they have succeeded in maintaining a certain level of power, knowing that they're going to lose elections um, for the next foreseeable future. Or maybe not. I mean, they may not actually lose elections now. If the, if all elections go to the Supreme Court, uh, which is a strong possibility for this year, I mean, when you lose power, you lose power, and you lose power, and you lose power, and more power, and more power. Um, but as you were saying, sorry. No, no. I mean, but you raise a, you raise a good point, because I saw it as them – um, staking a claim on a certain level of power and losing ground in other areas, but they've positioned themselves now, um, especially if it lands in court or in some type of legal battle, they're positioning themselves to win those battles with all of these confirmations and all of these nominations to the bench from the GOP. I am both frustrated and not surprised. I have um, had to think differently about it because of my 13-year-old daughter who it has had a hard time even having any trivial conversation um, over the past few days because anytime we bring up something like dessert, she's like, how can you talk about dessert when everybody's <laughs> rights are going away? They're, everything's going to get taken away. Because, girl, we need chocolate. That's right, exactly. <laughs> that, that is the only way we're going to survive. Um, I think um, when I was watching... Um, I watching the the confirmation hearings or the the debate on the floor before the vote. Um, I saw Chuck Schumer say um, to the Republican to the Republicans, "You may get this nomination through, but you will never regain your credibility." 
and quite frankly, um, I think that's true. I also am not sure that what the Democrats can do to regain their credibility either. Um, so I think I'm, I'm still stuck in last week's uh, conversation that this system is done and um, this confirmation and the political maneuvering around it is just another example of how done our system is. Yeah, I, Katie, I also heard uh, Chuck Schumer's comment about losing credibility. And the first thought that crossed my mind was, is credibility a category that half of the voters in this country even care about anymore, right? I mean, I, I would argue that credibility has left the GOP years ago. Um, you know, I, Sam, back to the point you made, I, I think you're right that this kind of fits a, a deeper pattern of Republicans really working to entrench their sense of control and power over different portions of the federal government, uh, regardless of electoral outcomes. And, I, you know, I think the other perfect example of that is the way the census has been handled this year, right? Like wrapping up the census early, I, that has drastic implications that we can, I think, really only begin to grasp as uh, the years ahead unfold. I mean, I, you know, as I think about Amy Coney Barrett's appointment, it, it's really hard for me to kind of wrap my head around uh, how many people's lives will be affected and how many different ways. Um, you know, after Merrick Garland was not even given a hearing in the Senate uh, four years ago, uh, this idea of, of Garland cases came up and people were talking about, you know, how, how many cases will we look at in the future and say, well, if Garland was on the court instead of Gorsuch, the decision would have been different. Um, and the number of so-called Garland cases has kind of increased over the years. And I, I think when you add Garland cases and now you can add, you know, Barrett cases to that as well, um, we'll look back and realize that these decisions you know, 20, 30 years down the road, we'll have drastically remade our democracy in ways that I think we really can't anticipate right now. And what makes me most anxious, and I think also just flat out angry, um, is how that continues to erode people's confidence in this system having any interest in upholding justice. I mean, I, you know, we can look historically, the system has never upheld justice in a, in a meaningful way. Yeah. Um, but even our aspiration for that is being threatened now. Um, and that, to me, feels really dangerous. And I think we'll continue to feel that for a, a number of years. There's an approach to the election that's trying to just make people um, feel like it doesn't even count and it doesn't matter. And so we want to say to anyone who's standing in the lines right now yeah. um, today, like, do not let that discourage you. If you're not standing in line, if you're sitting on your couch and you're uh, already discouraged and decided you're not going to be engaged in the voting process, like, get up off the couch. Um you're doing exactly what people who want to suppress your vote want you to do by sitting right. there. So please get up, go to the polls. Um, don't write somebody in. I've seen so much bullshit online right now talking about if you can't vote for somebody, go write in Jesus. A vote for Jesus on the ballot is not going to do shit to change the world right now because Jesus, it cannot be the president of this country. Right. And I would say should not. That's a campaign slogan. A vote for Jesus is a vote for Trump. Um, <laughs> Put it on a bumper sticker. That's true. Right. <laughs> I, you know, I want to say, I, I want to affirm that, Brandon, because I said, you know, that that system is done. And, and, and quite frankly, David, I think that um, the the Democratic Party is as lacks credibility as much as the GOP. I, I don't have any any confidence in the credibility of the Democratic Party either. 
However, at this point in time, voting and participating that way and at least getting this current administration out of the office is essential for moving forward. So voting, and then we figure out um, what we do next. But definitely pack up your lunch and take a camp chair and vote. vote. It, have a plan. If you're headed out to vote today, have a plan. If you're in large metropolitan areas, expect long lines, expect um, expect to not have necessarily access to food or bathrooms right away. Pack you some snacks in your pocket, wear comfortable shoes, be prepared to wait for most of the day, um, maybe even into the night. Uh, anticipate uh, inclement weather in your areas, depending on how the, the storm systems are rolling through the areas on today. But have a plan. Be determined. Stay until you cast your ballot. Don't go home without doing so. Brandon, you made a comment last week in our, our previous conversation, uh, a quote from Willie Jennings about how once black people have finally found ways of exercising their power and their voices, how often the rules of the game change. And to me, this is another example of the rules changing once black people find and exercise their their voice in the political realm, right? I mean, I, you know, you talk about voter suppression tactics, the appointment of not just Supreme Court justices, but judges all across the federal bench, appellate level, to me is a representation of a lot of people in power saying, we realize that this is slipping through our hands. And so we're going to do whatever we can to change the rules of the game. And to me, the way to challenge that is to continue to exercise the, the, the power that, that we have. It's in an imperfect system. I think that system needs tremendous work, but that is the opportunity that we have before us right now. So um, we shouldn't be without hope. There is this notion that um, in some shape, form, or fashion, the Supreme Court could be reformed. The Constitution doesn't set out the number of justices that are to be on the Supreme Court. And throughout time, we've actually had um, presidents who've changed the structure of the court. Um, there's this you know, approach to fixing this or reforming this by just adding justices to the bench. Joe Biden has not um, committed to that explicitly, he, but he's committed to establishing a commission of constitutional scholars, both conservative and liberal and uh, middle of the road, to have a conversation about how we might reform the Supreme Court. And he's going to do that over the first 180 days of his presidency, six months. So I think Joe is giving a safe response. I think he's giving a response that he thinks he needs to give to prevent raising alarms and losing the election within the last week because people are fearful that he's going to drastically change the courts. I think a lot of people who are more progressive and liberal are like, you, you better change the court. Don't you back off. Don't you be afraid. And I think I think we're headed there, but I think Joe knows that he can't give a full-throated endorsement of that at this stage of the of the election process. I think I think you're right. I also think that packing the courts is like the only strategy to help black folks and women and gays, dreamers and such. Unfortunately, I I think that that is just it, it's it's playing the same game in a system that's already fucked up. So packing the courts holds off the inevitable crumble of the system, but I think that it's another way of wielding power and that helps me. It helps people that I love, but it's still playing a game that's been founded on fucked up rules. But, but let me just say this. Nowhere in history 
has our system really benefited black people? Even now, even as progressive as we are, even as far as we've come, black people still have to remain hopeful in the face of systems that are complete and utter trash and bullshit. And so if you ask me, packing the courts doesn't necessarily offer a whole lot of, of anything for black people. I think we're going to get the, especially, what are you going to, are you going to pack it with a bunch of more, with white people? We've had two black Supreme Court justices in the history of our country. And so packing the court with a bunch of white progressive liberals that don't give me much hope. I mean, half of them already get on my nerves. What what does give you hope? Where does that hope come from? Put differently, what do you think is possible in this country? I'm I'm thinking on the quote from Brandon not too long ago that says he he doesn't trust revolution in the hands of white folks. And so as we talk about being hopeful or talking about charting a future, uh, uh, a hopeful future for marginalized folks in the U.S. I, I don't know if I can be hopeful about any future that goes through systems or through governance or through the hands of people who have institutional or organizational power. Um, I am hopeful for grassroots efforts um, to empower folks who come from marginalized classes in our society. Uh, I, I'm extremely hopeful when that happens. I do believe in challenging systems, in protesting systems, in speaking truth to power against systems because that's the world that we live in. We are governed by these institutions, by these structures, by these systems. And so we have to lift, continue to lift collective voices to, to challenge them, to keep them honest, to make sure that they are doing um, what they say they're going to do, make sure that they're working for the people. And as much as we challenge them and as much as we protest and as much as we march in the streets, I still don't trust them. Uh, I still wouldn't put, you know, my hope in them. And for the, for the most part, and history will tell you this, especially in black communities and black organizations, no matter who was in power, black people really had to chart their own path to, to happiness, to hopefulness. Um, and I think that that's what, that's what we still have to do. It's unfortunate that that burden has to always fall on the people who are marginalized, but that is what, what has to happen. I read an interesting statistic a couple of days ago. So uh, in the past 32 years, that's eight presidential election cycles, there have been six Republican winners and two Democratic winners. If you look at the popular vote, there were four Democratic winners and four Republican winners. Uh, so Republicans have won the White House twice while losing the popular vote in the last 32 years. In those 32 years, all nine Supreme Court justices have been appointed. The balance of power in the Supreme Court is six to three. And so I think to me, like just the numbers don't add up. And that is a helpful starting point for me. Like just let's start by realizing this system is broken and it's broken not because a certain number of people don't have the power that they want or what, like it's broken, like the math doesn't align. And I think if we start there and just say, look, what the people want, who the people have voted for over the last three decades is not represented at all in the people on the court. Let's start with that and let's go from there. Yeah, I am at the place where I'm just like, Joe Biden, we actually don't have 180 days to get this done. Like, because Republicans have been committed to obstruct, to prevent anything from happening other than the one thing that they want, which is Supreme Court justice. Like we've had a COVID-19 relief or pandemic relief bill, like just sitting, sitting there 
for months on end. They gave everybody a little twelve hundred dollars. And it's like, what did that do? Pay rent for half of the rent, <laughs> half of the electric, like half of the expenses for one month. And we're sitting here waiting on relief and we can't get that passed, but we can take four weeks to get a Supreme Court justice through. So for me, um, reform is needed. And I don't believe that the Democrats have as much time as they believe they do. The Republicans already have a strategy. They're going to meet with somebody like Newt Gingrich and they're going to say, oh, if they're taking six months, here are the ways we can mess things up in that six month period that actually prevent them from doing anything ahead of the midterm elections. If these reforms happen to the Supreme Court, what what all who all do they need to go through in order to to take place? It is the president and the Senate. It's the president's job to appoint or to identify. And it's the Senate's job to confirm. Advise and consent. Not even confirmed. Correct. If Joe Biden wins and if there's a blue wave that goes down ballot and Democrats have the House and the Senate, there is absolutely positively no reason to wait six months to do anything. You were within your constitutional rights. It's not even obstructionist to immediately appoint at least three more justices to the Supreme Court. I would say four because you want an odd number. But for every single seat that the Republicans stole, add a justice to the Supreme Court. But enough of that. Let's take a quick break. Anyone got a lighter topic we can discuss for us? So did y'all, did y'all realize that they're doing a remake of Saved by the Bell? Like, for real? I, I know David and Brandon, that's kind of art. Okay, I don't know if that's what... I did show, not watch that trash, but I know it was, oh, really? like, so I was probably in So what show would like, be Katie's then? area? What would it be? Just Mash. Mash? I was thinking like Matlock. <laughs> I was going like, oh, uh, in the heat of the night. Oh, I love Lucy, oh, man. Oh, on. David, you're done. <laughs> the monsters. Okay, the Munsters, yes. And the Adams family. Um, but MASH was a great show. But anyway, that's that's the best show that's ever been on TV. <laughs> then I got to college and MASH meant something else, but that's a totally different topic. Anyway, say by the bell. Oh, what is that? Brandon, come on. Oh, I got it now. <laughs> wow. So growing up, I loved Halloween until my mother stopped me and my younger brother from trick-or-treating because she was led to believe that Halloween was a non-Christian holiday. Never mind the fact that I just wanted candy. My soul salvation was at stake. Imagine my surprise years later when I discovered that Halloween was actually a part of a broader Christian holy season called All Hallowtide. Granted, historians would suggest that Christians likely absorbed the holiday, but that's not important. The point is this. I could have both served the Lord with gladness and had a few extra cavities if my mother just would have realized that Christians celebrated Halloween or All Hallows Eve. What's intriguing to me is the fact that I didn't learn about All Saints or All Souls Day either. The Christian tradition we were given didn't have space for any of that. I assume your parents at least let you trick-or-treat and get a few cavities, but what about All Saints Day? I actually hadn't heard about it a lot before I went to seminary, but um, I served for 12 years at a church in North Carolina, and it became one of my favorite days of the year. Um, So the first Sunday in November, we would um, list the names of folks in our community or folks who were important to members of our community who had died that year. And um, the, the pastor of the church would read the names, and as each name was read, I would light a candle. And so the communion table had candles all over it. And for me, it was um, one of the most sacred of worship experiences because it is um, completely silent and um, 
Mark would read the name and and I would light the candle and I could just feel the name of the person who had died echoing throughout my body. And we'd read about five, six names. And then we would sing the Tizay chant, um, Jesus, remember me. And then you sing it for us. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite the same if I sing something as if you sing something. It's going to be a joyful noise. You should, you should try. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm not going to. Uh, I, I do love you, but no. Um, but but that became such a, a holy, holy experience as we honored this cloud of witnesses that was around us. Just to be clear, All Saints Day is a Christian holiday that is most often celebrated by Catholics and or traditions that have a more intentional connection to saints. It is not as common for Protestant communities to celebrate this holiday. Growing up Baptist, this wasn't a part of our rhythm. Now, later on, I personally came to observe some version of All Souls Day, which was um, different than All Saints Day. Um, I think in Protestant circles, we conflate the two All Saints and All Souls Days. But um, All Souls Day is what most Protestants actually celebrate, even though we've learned to call it All Saints Day. Um, All Souls Day is the time when we celebrate or remember, reflect on the faithful departed or the dead. I think it was, I think it's too close of an association to like <laughs> believing in spirits and I I come from I grew up in Baptist churches where there was only one spirit the holy ghost ah, glory to god that we believed in only one and and this idea of you know candles and uh, dead people. Why and, you mad at candles? And chanting. Why you mad I'm at candles? About, I mean, this sounds like a seance or some kind of conjuring or something. Like, it's not a Ouija watched, board. We watched too many scary movies growing up. Makes you think about ghosts and some shit with Whoopi Goldberg. No, no, no. And so I didn't have very many experiences with All Saints or All Souls Day until I went to seminary uh, and went to a Methodist seminary and and we we did what Katie mentioned in chapel. And I was like, oh, this is kind of, this is kind of dope, you know? Um, and so now, even now in my own house, I have like what I call a cloud of witnesses with folks. I think uh, folks who departed this year or in years past and their, their pictures are framed and they line the top of my wall. And I really believe that those are the ancestors that are helping guide me on my journey. Which is another sort of variation, right? So like in perhaps non- Western religious settings, particularly for black folks, like ancestral veneration Correct. is another way in which we honor the dead. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be more like All Souls Day, but there is like a rich history, um, particularly in black and brown spaces of honoring your ancestors yes. and holding them tightly. I mean, having them walk with you, conjuring your ancestors, calling on your ancestors yes. in moments of stress and moments of um, joy as well. So, so I mean, you got, you got a little bit of, Got a little bit. You got a little Ouija board in your spirit. <laughs> I grew up in a, a white Southern Baptist congregation in South Carolina. And so All Saints Day, All Souls, All Souls Day was not something I was familiar with at all. And I think there were two reasons for that. Number one, just the, the plain reason is just the rejection of the liturgical calendar. But I think number two, on a, on a deeper level, I, you know, there's a part of me that's convinced that white evangelicals just reject like the very idea of death. It's kind of a bold claim and I'm, I'm happy to say more about that. But it, to me, it, it just feels like 
white evangelicals have such a strong set of convictions about death being just a momentary disruption in relationship instead of something that is is final or impactful. I would differentiate between evangelicals rejection of the idea of death and then like a fear of death, right? Because the fear of death, if you're not a believer, if you're not saved, if you're a backslider or whatever, like that fear is real. And we fear death for the people who don't know the Lord. But for white evangelical saved folks, I'm not sure that death is a meaningful concept, right? So we hear these things like, oh, God just needed another angel in heaven, you know, like stuff like that. And I, I think really and truly a lot of white evangelical Christianity is built around this idea of just a, a rejection of death as a real thing. When you were talking, Sam, you were talking about ancestors and 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 Brandon as well, and um, as as we've been wrestling with this particular show this week, I'm I, I think of two things. I think of one, um, like I think white folks were not typically we don't typically think of ancestors coming back. We think of this kind of cloud of witnesses that's up there, but there's nobody coming down mm-hmm. to kind of journey with us. At the same time, though, as I've thought about it, um, I also thought about how um, my grandmother uh, loved birds. And every time a cardinal shows up in my mother's path, she's confident that that's her mom, my grandmother, coming to visit her. So much so that it's been passed down to Jordan as well. That that's, I mean, that's kind of our senses that that she's with us. Um. The second thing is, I do think that there, and I don't know if it, I don't know if it relates. I'd be interested to see if that's, um, if there's some kind of connection. But I do think that children and uh, that are just born and people that are at the end of their life, I have always believed they see, they see, they experience um, the afterworld, the people who have gone before, the ancestors. And so I know my grandmother, when she was dying, she saw my grandfather welcoming her. I mean, she talked about that. And and, and I, I can sense that in my own life. I also simultaneously know and am so confident that my grandmother, the one who shows up to our family as a, as a cardinal, I know she met Jordan uh, before she showed up. That sounds so fucking weird. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it has to. I think, so that, but, that, but, that's, but that's part of the thing, right? So we've been socialized in a religious world um, that was founded so for for Protestant traditions, right? Like we were established trying to not be Catholic, and because and, uh, saints and the dead and all these concepts were so integral to their understanding of what it meant to be Catholic, there was a um, exp- there was an intentional effort to prevent us from developing these relationships with saints, souls, the dead, right? So right. there's there so it's natural for when we talk about these things for them to sound weird. So I've learned to connect with ancestors in like liturgical spaces and worship spaces, but recently with the um um with Lovecraft Country, um, a new show on HBO. If you haven't seen it yet, go uh, subscribe to HBO for one month and watch the show, binge watch the show. Um, it's amazing. And what I've been most impressed by with Lovecraft Country is the way in which ancestors, mm. um, people of the past, people in the future, where it's, I mean, it's black sci-fi, right? So um, timelines don't really matter. You can be <laughs> in the future in one moment, in the past in one moment, and you, it doesn't matter when you were born where you were. Like, mm. you're, it's always happening right now. One scene that stands out to me in Lovecraft Country is this scene where um, uh, Journey Smollett, 
uh, her character is sitting in the basement of a house that she's purchased, and there's it's the house of a white person. She shouldn't be a person who owns the house. The white folks around her have been terrorizing her for the entirety of the episode, and she finally finds out that this person is in the basement. This spirit is in the basement haunting the house, and it's a white uh, racist man. So she goes to the basement of her home, and in the moment, she starts to conjure this white racist man. And he mm-hmm. appears before her, and he starts to, like, what I would call terrorize her in mm-hmm. the moment. So it's this spirit mm-hmm. terrorizing someone who's, I would call, alive in this moment and right now, living and well. But then the scene changes. She starts to conjure her ancestors mm. in the moment, and they start to surround this white man, and together, there's a type, I mean, I think I would call it battle. They're engaged in battle. I, I'm not quite a pacifist, um, but... When we, we talk, battle language still sort of uh, rubs me the wrong way at times. But in this scene, I loved it. Mm-hmm. They were engaged in a type of battle or war against this white spirit that was haunting them. Right. And ultimately, I think what I'm trying to pull from this is there's a way that Lovecraft Country has learned to uh, portray ancestors in a manner where this idea of conjuring them to be with you in a moment right. and relying on their spirits is manifest in the show. And not just ancestors, like to follow the narrative of the show, She's conjuring this white racist person who owned the home, but she also finds out that they found the body parts of dead of eight dead African Americans in this basement yeah. because this white racist person tortured, terrorized, and killed them. And, and that's who and, comes and, back. And that's who comes back. And so uh-huh. she's and so in the moment that she's battling this white racist um, homeowner, I think she realizes that she can't do this alone. And mm-hmm. she says this. She says, come on, you're not dead yet. She's speaking to the other eight spirits mm-hmm. that are present in the house. Yes. She conjures them uh-huh. to help her defeat this white homeowner. And these spirits come together. And all of them, all eight of them, plus her, um, are, are gathered in this circle around uh, this white homeowner, and they defeat him in that moment. It's a powerful, powerful moment. What does it mean for all of our ancestors, those who've gone before us, the souls, the fallen, um, to always be moving about space with us? And what does it mean to invite those ancestors into new ways of being, new ways of thinking, new ways of living? Like. We, we, we two black men, two white folks, a lesbian, a homosexual, um, a recovering Baptist, two of three. You still good in Baptist? Yeah, I'm still good in Baptist. So three, so two recovering Baptists and a real good Baptist, a Presbyterian who swims Ish. on Sundays. <laughs> like, I do not swim on Sundays. Is that Sunday. like euphemism for something else? What no, is it's just swimming. Oh, it's swimming. <laughs> oh, it's swimming. <laughs> no, but anyway. I actually teach Sunday school on Sunday. I is that swim. euphemism? For, no, I'm <laughs> So my question is, like, what does it look like for us all to be mindful of our ancestors and the ways that they're actually calling on us, knowing and unknowingly, to perform in a moment. Mm. Like if our ancestors only knew how to relate to one another through slave and master, through powerful and powerless, through those who were living and those who were dead. Like if they only knew those relationships, how do they still come around and do their bidding in our relationships today? Mm. And what does it mean to be mindful of that? And to also not only be mindful of ancestors, but those for whom we will be ancestors. Mm-hmm. Right. 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 100 years down uh, from now, when our children are sitting around a table like this, how are they going to invite us into new patterns of behavior and new relationships? What if we all had that sort of intimacy with our ancestors, the souls, the saints? 
I'm intrigued by um, when you said the courage, like grabbing someone's courage and being able to use it in the moment. I thought about that. I also thought about those like negative voices that you have in your head, like the trauma that gets passed on from generation to generation. What does it look like to engage that ancestor, uh, foremother, forefather, about that trauma so that, like, how does that become a source of healing to be able to wrestle with that? For whom? Right. We all need to develop intimate relationships with our ancestors. That's the key. We, we need to be honest about any sort of atrocities they performed, and we need to be able to cultivate intimacy with them. So what does it mean to be so familiar with your ancestors that when you know they're trying to come in here and act up, they're coming in here and try to enslave folks psychologically, financially, right. politically. Right. How do you command them? Come on, somebody. To perform in a different way. Right. I, I'm really channeling or thinking about a scene from Black Panther when T'Challa There will goes, be no challenge today. <laughs> not today. Uh, <laughs> we will not have it. Uh, <laughs> when T'Challa goes to the ancestral plane, and for so long, I got and for so long, um, Wakanda kept all of their resources, everything within Wakanda, and they did not share it with the world. And he goes to the ancestral plane, and he's talking to his father, and he says, you were wrong. You all were wrong. Yeah. And I'm thinking about that scene as Brandon speaks. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, How do yeah. you stand up and you say, yes, I revere, I honor, I love my ancestors, mm -hmm. but on this, you were wrong. You all were wrong. My God, I, like, the T-shirts that I hate right now, maybe they're not as popular anymore, but the T-shirts that are like, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. uh, I ain't, this ain't your mama civil rights movement. Like, I hate those shirts because... In some ways, what it suggests is that the only relationship that we can have with our ancestors is to either say, to like exceptionalize them or to demonize them, to say they were just respectable Negroes. They didn't have right. any, like, what does it mean to not choose that sort of narrative? But again, intimacy, so that I might go to my ancestors on a plane one day, on an ancestral plane, and say, hey, I love you, and I know you were struggling to do this thing just like I am, and on this thing, you were wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, isn't that the isn't that the purpose of intimacy? Whether you're doing it with um, someone who's right here in the same room with like you. Sex. <laughs> wow, sorry, <laughs> I went twelve for one second. I'm listening to you. Isn't that the purpose of intimacy? <laughs> isn't that the purpose of intimacy? Is to be able to be completely authentic, be able to say you were wrong or I was wrong, and know that that is. Um, that there's that we grow from that. So whether we have that intimacy with our ancestors or foremothers and forefathers, or if we have that intimacy with people who are alive today, that is, that's the point. One of the passages of scripture that I find most perplexing uh, is this promise, behold, I am making all things new. One of the things that I find interesting about that claim is the tense and then the object so I am making all things new. So it's an active thing that's, that's happening. And this new creation is unfolding kind of in our midst. But when we talk about all things, what perplexes me about that is how do we remake the past, right? I mean, isn't, like, isn't, isn't the past already fixed? That's what, that's what the definition of the past is. It's mm -hmm. this thing that's already done. Mm -hmm. And so that promise 
to me that, that we get in scripture, um, I, I just find to be really deeply challenging. But I hear in that this hope that what has happened before is not fixed in time, that it's not done, it's not over. Yeah. And that gives me just such tremendous hope. You know, and when we bring our ancestors into it, this idea, you know, what I hear in this conversation is just this this idea that we can encounter them for who they are and recognize that their memory and their legacy and the ways in which that legacy still lives within us is not fixed. For me, the beauty of that scripture um, in conversation with Lovecraft Country is like, I am making all things new. And I think that's what's happening in this TV show. Um, there's a way in which the past isn't fixed. Like there's a, so at the end of the season, spoiler alert, they weave in the story of Emmett Till, but they look at the story through the lens of this particular family. And so they go back in time and they relive their family's history alongside their family, family members who've died, their ancestors. And it's that relationship in the past that actually shifts something in the future. It's them going back, being present with their ancestors, summoning their ancestors that shifts something not just then but also in that in their present and i think this show offers us a beautiful example of what it means to walk with our ancestors to borrow from their courage to make them part of our everyday lives and it is in that practice that ritual even that all things can be will be are being made new I think that's a good place for a break. Let's take a quick breather and then I'll be right back with our conversation with my friend, Carlos Cardoza Orlando. Friends, I'm thrilled to welcome to the Mourner's Bench, Dr. Carlos Cardoza Orlandi. Uh, Carlos serves as the Frederick Roach Professor of World Christianity at Baylor University, and his research includes mission studies, history, interreligious engagement, and the study of world religions. More personally, Carlos is a husband and a father to three adult sons, and he enjoys a good cup of coffee with friends and family. He's known to be an extremely passionate teacher, scholar, justice worker, and someone who is committed to a daily rediscovery of the gospel. Um, and still even more personally, I had the um, privilege of meeting Carlos recently uh, through a mutual friend, a uh, mutual dear friend, Dr. Marcia Riggs. Um, and I just want to say he's one of the most uh, genuine, compassionate, and uh, engaging humans I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. And so I'm glad that he agreed to be a guest here on the Mourner's Bench, and I'm excited about the conversation. So uh, we welcome Dr. Carlos Cardoza Orlandi. So one of the things we've talked about before is the role of art and music in religious education. You've talked about how oftentimes in your classroom, it's easier to get your students to interrogate their deeply held religious beliefs that are always rooted in culture. Um, by inviting them to look at art and or listening to a certain piece of music. We live in an extremely polarized world. Um, the election's happening today, which is another symbol of our polarization. But are there ways that art and music might breathe fresh air into our stalemated political discourse? 
let's let's talk about this COVID situation, if you don't mind, sure. to make an example. And it's so polit, polit, it has politicized. This is a virus that carries a blue and a red color in the United States. One of the things that is interesting, there's so much art regarding pandemics and epidemics hmm. in the world. So ways of entering into the conversation, re Christian responses to pandemics and epidemics has been art. And this is important in my Latino mm -hmm. congregations. I've had to do this among Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. I was invited to do something about religion and, and COVID. Uh -huh. And and I the way that I started was trying to provide the audience with religious and theological references in art and in history to how Christians responded to pandemics and epidemics. And as you might probably know, we've got every single response. Yep. So some of Christian communities that are not following the CDC guidelines, to say the least, to yep. say the least, yep. CDC guidelines, mm -hmm. um, and now they have become places of mega transmission. Yep. Um, well, sure, during the Spanish flu, we had those examples in Spain. Mm -hmm. And we had those examples in Portugal. And we had some of those except, you know, so, you know, you bring it forth yeah. and then people began to think a little bit differently. But in the same way, we provide also, there are, we have historical examples of Christians who actually did amazing things during this time. Mm -hmm. In addition to keeping isolation and social distance, you have families whose parents died because of the Spanish flu and the children were orphans. We have historical evidence of churches and families in those churches that actually adopted those children. Oh, wow. You know, and then obviously in the, during antiquity, you have the responses of Christians who did not know better. So you have the epidemics mm -hmm. and they did not know better. So they would, they would still do care work in order to address the needs of Christians and non-Christians. And they would die. Yeah. And they were, and because they died, during the pandemic or the epidemic, and because there was no way, we, they don't have the science that we have today. Obviously, we're talking about the first century, second century. Right. They were considered martyrs because they died for the sake of loving their neighbor. Yeah. So you can imagine when you suddenly tell the stories, and and we have the we have the icons of mm -hmm. of some of them, and we have um, a art, and to enter this complex conversation with something that appeals to not necessarily it doesn't appeal to the immediately to the immediate movement of debate but it appeals to the beauty or the horror of the art yeah there, there's a different way of entering the conversation that does not necessarily end up in in covid 19 being blue or red COVID-19 is an example of the creation also longing yeah. for, redemption, for redemption. So you suddenly allow people to make their own connection. And that's a, that's a, that's, that's pedagogy of the oppressed, you know, type Absolutely. Of, of approach. One of the things that I was connected with is this idea that around the time of the Spanish flu, you had people who were Christians caring for other Christians and non-Christians, but really living into this um, message about loving your neighbor so much so that they were called saints. Um, now, yeah. I was raised in the Baptist church, and so yeah. we didn't have a lot of conversation about saints or about um, ancestors and other people who had gone on before 
for us. Can you talk a little bit more about how we come to think about saints and the role that saints play in the church and why that's a significant thing? Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a that's a really important question. Do you do you know when our parents, for instance, would tell us when they had the stove that it was on and they would actually turn off the stove, but they knew it was still hot. Mm -hmm. And the way that they would stop us from touching the stove is by actually not letting us in the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh -huh. Well, Protestant did something in a way very, very similar. And what they did was they removed everything that had to do or that would give any taste of being Catholic. And therefore, they threw out the baby with the water. I think you say in English, they threw out the baby with the water or whatever yep, it is. Yep, yep, yep. They, they threw out everything. And consequently, what we have in many of our Protestant and hyper-Protestant hmm. um, perspectives is a kind of disworldly, Christian experience. And once death happens, you know, well, they're, they're, they're in the bosom of God. And so, and so be it. That's it. That, mm -hmm. That's the end of it. Mm -hmm. Whereas that is not, that is not the history of the Christian religion. Hmm. That is not the history of the Christian religion, not even until today, because actually those who, as the Bible says, those who die in cross in, in Christ, And those who die in the gospel, their work continues with us. Yeah. No? Yep, yep, yep. So there's we have enough biblical um, su suggestive text that will allow us to actually see and, and recognize that in the Christian tradition, those who die in Christ precede us. Mm -hmm. And they are still part of the community. That's why in some churches um, we have, for instance, the celebration of the All Saints Day. Yeah. And let me tell you a story about this. My wife, my wife, who is a evangelical and Latin American evangelical, mm -hmm. the first time she ever experienced a as part of the liturgy, the the bringing to memory. Of the of those who had died, that were part of our Christian community, mm -hmm. was in Dallas, Texas. Really, when we're talking, and we have been here since 2010, so it's only 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Speak why? Because in Latin America, to remember the dead or to make any reference to the dead, that that's a boundary with Catholicism. Huh. And therefore, we as Protestants are not Catholics, so we don't have anything to do with the dead. Right. The dead die in Christ, and we wait for the resurrection or for the second coming of Christ when they go up. Mm -hmm. okay. So here we have a woman, deeply Christian. My wife is deep, very deeply Christian, evangelical to the core, biblically oriented, and yet the first time she actually engages with a, with a Christian Protestant celebration in a Methodist church of All Saints Day. She is already 50 plus years old. Wow. And she has been a Christian for all her life. What she discovers is 
how important it was. Because in the liturgy, when the lights are off Mm -hmm. and you began to have images of those who had died Mm -hmm. with their name, the the year they were born, the year they died, Mm -hmm. and then this very kindly played bell. Ding! Mm -hmm. And this moment of silence. She was mesmerized because she was actually able to retrieve the memory of those that she knew Hmm. in that community. Yeah. That's amazing. It is. They stole that piece of our lives from us. Yeah. On the basis of being Protestants. Yeah. And in Latin America and in Africa as well and in Asia, even Protestant missionaries were even more stronger against us. Because it is interesting that in the Methodist Church, you in, in the United States, mm-hmm. in a, you have that experience. But if I take you to a Methodist church in, in Cuba, you're not going to have it. <laughs> because it's affiliated to Afro-Caribbean religions. Yeah. You see? Yeah. It, it, it is as if anything that is not in the Bible <laughs> has to be excluded. Yeah. That's what hurts, at least for me is that they have told us what is it that we need to read from the Bible. Because in the Bible, the recognition of the ancestors is critical. Yeah. I mean, just think about just think about Christ resurrected. We have in the Gospels all these stories about Christ engaging with his disciples after, after his death. And you want to tell me that those who die in Christ have nothing? They're, they're, they're to be removed? from our emotions and from our experience in our life. No, 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 no. No, Protestantism in that sense needs to be revisited. And we need to retrieve a lot from our Catholic traditions. Absolutely. From our Catholic tradition in that sense. Carlos, this is too good of a conversation to end right here. I feel like we're just getting started. So let's do this. Can we continue our conversation on Thursday? Yeah. Are you sure? Yes, certainly. Oh my gosh, thank you. So friends, that's a wrap for this episode of The Mourner's Bench. Thank you so much, Carlos, for being with us today. And we'll be back on Thursday with another second pour that'll include the rest of my conversation with Carlos. Next Tuesday, we'll have an episode reflecting on whatever the state of the election is at that time. And we'll try to muster up the strength to offer a human response to whatever's happening. For now, just get off your bum and vote. And make sure everyone you know is doing the same. Thanks for listening. If you've got questions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Just email what's up at thefeolab.com. We'll see you Thursday. Let's cover this thing with the blood, honey. Shut up.